0: This is Create Now, the show that explores creative and generative approaches to changing the systems that rule our world. We are sector agnostic and our guests come from a myriad of different disciplines and practices, but they share one thing in common. They are people who are creatively rethinking and remaking sectors once thought unchangeable. On this episode, I speak with Judith Ank, who is currently the senior advisor at the Institute for Governance and Sustainable Development and a visiting faculty member at Bennington College's Center for the Advancement of Public Action. In 2009, she was appointed Regional Administrator of Region 2 of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency by President Barack Obama. She stepped down from her EPA position on January 20, 2017. Judith is an esteemed environmentalist with roots in activism and in civil service. Her passion and determination to fight for those most affected by pollutants guides all of her work, including teaching courses at Bennington College, sharing her wealth of knowledge and experience with the next generation fighting for climate justice. It is a total pleasure to be here with Judith Ank, um, who is currently a faculty member, visiting faculty member at the Center for the Advancement of Public Action at Bennington College. Um, So thank you for giving your time and talking to the Create Now team today.
1: A pleasure to be here with you.
0: So Judith, you've had such an incredible and varied career in the environmental movement, working for governments, working for nonprofits, but also doing your own activist work um, in building coalitions, going all the way back to when you were an undergraduate. And I wondered if you could take us back and talk about what inspired those first uh, actions and what it entailed and how you felt emboldened to actually go after issues that you were deeply concerned about and actually change policy.
1: Well, I didn't come from a particularly political family. I came from a very loving home. I was the oldest of five children. And I think that birth order actually plays a role with some people when, when they're activists. My husband's also the oldest of five children. And um, I was kind of involved in issues in high school, but um, you know, really didn't jump in with two feet until college. Um, I went to a small liberal arts college in Albany, the College of St. Rose. And first semester, freshman year, I remember going to the Student Activity Fair and stumbling upon a table for the New York Public Interest Research Group, NYPIRG. And there are PIRGs all over the country, including in Vermont, and the model is uh, students come together. they work on progressive issues and they hire professional staff to represent them in the legislature or scientists um, engineers um, lawyers who guide the students and so i really have to credit nyperg uh, for waking me up in terms of what is possible i was a political science and history major but i knew what i was being taught in political science class didn't really match how the real world of politics worked. So I became very active with NYPerg. I set up my college's recycling program. I worked to get asbestos out of some of the buildings. And then my junior year I did an internship with NYPIRG in the state legislature trying to pass New York's bottle bill, the law that puts a five cent nickel deposit on beverage containers, NYPIRG and other organizations had tried to pass it for 10 years, could never get it through because it was really strongly opposed by a huge coalition. Mom and pop companies like Coke and Pepsi and <laughs> supermarkets. The little ones. The little <laughs> tiny ones. I, I even had a, a labor union lobbyist threaten me physically in the elevator one day in the New York State Capitol. So, I worked to pass the bottle bill my first year. I failed miserably. And I remember going back to some of the legislators who I'd lobbied and said, So, you know, why didn't you vote for this or why didn't you allow this to come up in committee? And one senator um, who we disagreed with on everything um, just did me a huge favor. He said, Judith, you were so convincing. You had facts, you have data, you had research. But there was the perception that this bill was bad for business. And as long as that perception exists, your bill is not going to pass. Wow. And I really took that to heart. And that taught me that the facts alone are not enough. You have to match the facts with a very, uh, aggressive, uh, far reaching organizing strategy to affect change. And I never thanked that senator for being so honest and so direct with me, but it really, you know, you don't learn that in in a classroom. You learn it when you're out and doing. And so that really launched my career um, in environmental protection work. I've been very, very drawn to environmental issues. I grew up in the Catskills. I care a lot about public health. I love solid waste issues, love, love, love (laughs) them. And I think part of it is because it gets to um, sustainability and overconsumption. Um, Americans in particular consume so much natural resources, so much energy, uh, and then we um, think we can easily cite incinerators and landfills usually in low-income communities of color. So the solid waste issues, I mean, we all generate solid waste and it it just touches so many critical environmental issues so it's kind of interesting that i've come full circle i started on solid waste and waste issues and now that's what i'm going to tackle here at the college
0: so we're going to get to that in a second but i want to i want to go back for just a a moment because (laughs) no well that too but, so, you know, you spent all this time lobbying, right? The, the, the legislature in New York failed, had a gift from that senator, and then went back at it. Yes. And did have success. So yes. when you set out to re-engage, how did you know what strategies to employ? Like, who did you call on to help you? And how did you shift? So did, it, did, it, did a story come into You know more than the facts and the data and the numbers like what emerged because of that so
1: the thing about nyperg is um they throw you in the deep end of the pool and they tell you just go do it and you know you get a little bit of supervision and i could run things by my supervisor Artie malkin and um what we decided is less time walking the halls of the legislature and more time out in the community building a coalition so I built a statewide coalition of farmers, garden clubs, League of Women Voters, uh, even motorcycle enthusiasts, and then a whole bunch of environmental groups. And we worked together very diligently to pass uh, the bill in the legislature, targeting local uh, legislators. So you know, every member of the state legislature will go to the Capitol, to vote, but they go back to their district offices for the rest of the week. And that's where we did a lot of our engagement. I also learned a lot about using the media uh, to keep people informed. And another blessing is the first time I um, organized a news conference where I was gonna speak at and a few other people. I remember I was a senior in college. I was so nervous, you know, a news conference, TV cameras will be there. I was afraid I was going to screw it up. I was so nervous that I threw up that morning. I was sick. I get to the news conference, no one came, not even one reporter. And so I always assumed when I did news conferences in the future that no one would come, so I never got nervous again. I've now clocked probably hundreds of news conferences, but again, it was kind of good that no one came to the first one because it, it helped Uh, give me some confidence that for future news conferences I could just relax because people wouldn't show up.
0: And I suspect that that coalition building that you did across the state had served you for a long time.
1: Yeah, it did, it was a lot of driving in a really bad car, Um, (laughs) late at night. um, I would speak to anyone who would invite me. I would do debates uh, with bottle bill opponents. I met with editorial boards and I developed working relationships. Yep. So then when I graduated, and it was time for me to find a job, I already knew people in the environmental community and, and was hired by one of the Albany environmental groups.
0: Because they knew you. Exactly. Because of this incredible success. So you went then, after graduation, you were hired on in a, an Albany-based group, and what was your work there, and then what, I really want to understand is how then the leap from the nonprofit world and the advocacy right. world government. into yeah. the inside, right, yeah. into the government base. Big space. shift,
1: yeah. So I worked for the Albany-based group Environmental Advocates. Uh, funny story, they didn't have money to hire me. They were tiny. They were like two people. An executive director and an office manager and so the executive director said i really really want to hire you but the only opening i have is for an office manager he said do you want to like you can lobby during the week and organize during the week and just do all the boring office manager stuff work on the weekend so i said sure why not they paid me a hundred dollars a week i rode my bike all over albany and that was fun and um And at one point, the executive director said he was leaving suddenly to run for political office. And I'm sitting in a board meeting. There were 65 board members. And the executive director announced this and the board members panicked. We don't have time to do a search. We don't have money to hire a headhunter. What are we gonna do? And at that point, one of the really seasoned and well-respected board members, only one person could really get away with this said, well, I don't think we need to do a search, let's hire Judith. And I literally, like my head was down, I was reading something and I was like, <laughs> bung. I was like, what? And so everyone kind of looked at me, you know, I, I think I was like eating a carrot or something. <laughs> um, and they said, what do you think, Judith, do you want to be the executive director? That was literally how I was hired. And so I thought about it for 10 seconds and said sure let's give it a whirl so um, they hired me to be the executive director when i was 23. Amazing! i peaked early and uh, i helped build the organization i did a lot of fundraising i passed bills in the legislature i set up the first um, uh, 501c3 sister organization so we could apply for grants Mm -hmm. Um, and built the organization from like 1.52 people to about like eight people, uh, which is a big deal for a small nonprofit. And that organization is they, this year they're celebrating their 50th anniversary. But the thing I was proudest of is I helped pass bills in the legislature that were signed into law, this nation's first acid rain law, the first, um, one of the first um, state Uh, toxic waste cleanup laws, state superfund, bills to protect the Adirondacks, bills to protect um, habitat. And I always loved just kind of mixing it up, um, getting into the legislature, making the case for different bills, trying to outsmart our special interest opponents. And every single bill I worked on, we were always outgunned and outfinanced. I remember one year, We had passed a bill to prohibit the importation of wild exotic birds, because something like a third of them died on the plane. They were captured in Central America, South America, brought by plane to the United States, and like a third of them died. So that convinced the legislature to, um, to pass a bill to ban the importation of wild imported birds and sale in New York. Okay, good, nice victory, it only took us a year or two. And then um, the pet shops organized and hired lobbyists. Who knew the pet shops had so much influence and um, they were working to repeal the law. And I worked on that so hard for so many months and we won in committee, but only by one vote. And um, it was a reminder that none of your victories are permanent, you're always relitigating.
0: Certainly relevant in this moment in time, yes. uh, but as a leader, right? So as a leader of an organization that's looking at you know, challenging issues across a lot of different you know, environmental sectors, how do you decide which is the one to go for now and to fight and advocate for either a law or a policy change?
1: Well, I think you pick the issues based on what is the environmental threat Um, I'm always drawn to toxic issues, to water quality issues, to climate change issues these days. I want to work on things um, that matter. So, um, you know, when I worked in environmental advocates, I didn't pick the policies alone, it was along with the board of directors. Mm -hmm. And we worked on things that were environmental threats where we felt like we had a value add. Like we didn't want to just be another group to raise our hand, we wanted to really make a difference. And we were not afraid of David and Goliath fights. You know, we felt like if we had the facts on our side, it was, it was worth trying. But we, we always felt like we didn't do enough. And, and we didn't, mm-hmm. you know, we, we were always outgunned. We were always working hard. Um, the strength of the environmental movement is grassroots volunteers, people who work for free because they care about their community. And I'm really interested in getting college students more engaged with community leaders uh, fighting for environmental protection at the local level or the state level. I think we've gotten a little rusty on that, and that needs a bit of a uh, revival.
0: Absolutely. And I'm going to want to hear a lot more about the work that you're doing here at CAPA. Um, But I also want to know, because there was the very important moment where you decided to go into right. government and yes. be on the other side and be the one that would be the thoughtful advocate from the inside working with these external groups so who invited you in right who decided okay she keeps coming to us and making change we want her on our team yeah
1: so that's i'm glad you asked um so Every few years I would get a call from an incumbent attorney general or state legislator and they'd ask do you want to come work on the inside and I would consistently say no. I would thank them and then I would arrogantly in my head have a conversation like, oh my God, I'm not burned out yet, I don't need to be on the inside, I can have more influence on the outside, which was absolutely wrong. So I love sharing this story, particularly with women and young women. Every interesting job I've gotten um, has been through a very unorthodox way. I've never like answered an ad in the paper. So the way I started working in the New York State Attorney General's office, where I stayed for eight years in the Environmental Protection Bureau is, um, often candidates would come to to NYPERG and, want briefings on issues. And we would brief Republicans, Democrats, Greens, Libertarians, whoever. And this one attorney general candidate came in and I was so impressed with him. I learned a lot from him when I was supposed to be briefing him. And that was Elliot Spitzer, who was running for attorney general. So he got elected narrowly. There was like a recount. It took like a month. And what I often did is when a statewide official was newly elected, I would start making lists of things I thought they should do in their new jobs. And I remember so clearly, I'm driving on Route 7 near Cahose. and there's yeah. this terrible old hazardous waste incinerator called the Norlite incinerator that pumps lots of toxins into the air. And I had this terrible habit back then of making notes when I was driving. Um, so I made a note, you know, Spitzer, Norlite, and I was going to talk to him about getting his enforcement staff and attorneys and scientists to look at this. And then it was like a thunderbolt. I was like, well, rather than me suggesting this to him, maybe I should go on the inside and, and work on this myself. I felt so strongly about that issue. And I'm like, you know, when you get an idea in your head and you just kind of like, you want to drive it away, it's like, that's not a good idea. Don't even say the words. And I, I, for a few days, I didn't tell anyone. I couldn't get the idea out of my head. And then I thought, I'll run this by my husband because he's gonna say it's a terrible idea. And not that I need my husband's permission for what I do for my my work, but we're very close. We've been married for 36 years and we bounce ideas off each other constantly, maybe too much. Um, So I said to Mark, so, you know, I was running by the Norlite incinerator and I had this idea. And he said, brilliant, you should definitely do that. You would be really good on the inside. I'm like, ah.
0: You're like, oh no, you are supposed to save me from that.
1: I'm really surprised. He's like, no, no, he didn't even think about it. He said, go for it. So I called up the attorney general elect and I said, I have this idea and I pitched him. And I said, and by the way, I'm not a lawyer. And he said good I have too many lawyers the whole office is lawyers but you're a policy expert and you're really good at community engagement I want you to talk to the incoming bureau chief because I would be reporting to that person if you know that discussion goes well you're hired um, so this discussion went well they hired me um, and I look back at them like god what was I thinking um, but it's like a lesson you just kind of have to figure out where can you do the most good. And that started my career of trying to do good on the inside. And then the attorney general was elected governor. So I followed him into the governor's office and very grateful that he named me deputy secretary for the environment. So I handled his whole environmental agenda. I had oversight of about 10 agencies. I negotiated the environmental budget for all the agencies I drafted. With the, with the lawyers, all his environmental bills. I did the first draft of speeches. I organized events. I interacted with countless, countless, countless lobbyists. I had a rule that um, the New York Times actually wrote about this. None of my meetings lasted more than a half hour.
0: Well, thank uh, you for giving us more time. <laughs> <laughs> we
1: made an exception today. Um, so. I was working the hardest I ever worked when I was in the governor's office. And at that point, my son was off at college, so it all kind of worked. My husband didn't really need me anymore. He'd have dinner for me at 11 o'clock at night. Um, I remember my goal was always to get home in time to see The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, and that started at 11. and all was going really well until the governor had this problem, which um, was just a terrible personal failing. And so he, um, he left office and a number of um, his staff left with him. And part of it was because they never really respected the lieutenant governor. I, on the other hand, loved the lieutenant governor. Whenever I couldn't get the governor to give a speech, I would ask the lieutenant governor. I worked closely with him on renewable energy. And so he invited me to stay on, which I did uh, for maybe another year or so. And
0: Um, this was Patterson. David
1: Patterson, yeah. yeah. And then um, before his term was over, uh, Barack Obama was elected, and I thought, it would be really cool to work for Barack Obama, right? Really cool. <laughs> really cool. And I didn't know him. I didn't really work on his campaign. I mean, I probably sent him $50, maybe $25. Um, I, I probably knocked I knocked on doors. You know, I had a sign. That was it. And I thought, ooh, how do you get a presidential appoint appointment? And so I did a little research, and I talked to met friends who work in Congress, and um, basically threw my hat in the ring to be considered uh, to be regional administrator. Um, I was also kind of thinking maybe something in Washington, but my dad was ill and I wanted to be closer to him in the Catskills. So I thought, well, let me go for this regional position. EPA region two represents New York, New Jersey, eight Indian nations in New York, Puerto Rico and the West Virgin Islands. So it's kind of like I had three regions uh, New York, New Jersey was one, the Caribbean was another, and the New York City always thought they were their own region. Um, so it was very competitive. And the way you get these political positions is you basically have to organize for it. You, you, rarely is anyone called and said, oh, would you like this position? No, you have to advocate for yourself, which I was really bad at. But a couple of my friends in the environmental community essentially took me on and ran a campaign to get people to weigh in. And one really funny story is after I got the position, we were, all the regional administrators who were appointed at the time were brought to Washington for like, you know, a two day training. Like two days, get you ready to supervise 800 people and manage a budget of $700 million. Um, And they brought in some folks from the White House Office of Personnel uh, to meet us, because we'd been interacting with that office quite a bit. The Obama administration really vetted you. I mean, if you had an unpaid traffic ticket, mm. they, they knew. They were so careful, nothing like the crowd today. So we're going around introducing ourselves, and I say my name, and the three people from the White House Office of Personnel, like, like dropped everything, I'm like, you're due to think? Oh, my God we got more letters supporting <laughs> you. There was only one other guy in the whole country that got more letters than you. You know, you you had people calling here and I was like so embarrassed. <laughs> all my new colleagues were hearing this. And I'm like, well, I'm happy you listened to all the letters, thank you. And they were so upbeat and kind of like excited to meet me. And it was really just because like three of my friends decided, you know, let's try to organize around this. And, and you, you know, you just, you have to advocate for yourself. So that was my EPA experience, which was amazing.
0: So that's the beginning. Yeah. Right? And so you have your two days of training and right. then you're overseeing a nearly billion dollar budget with all of these various constituents across states and it, in the Caribbean. And then, of course, the First Peoples uh, Reservations. Um, so how do you even begin? So what yeah. what then happened? What do you do? Because yeah. this is a major transition. Yeah. Um. So
1: I go in with my to-do list. It's a really long list. Now I had the advantage of I worked in state government at that point for, um, let's see, 11 years. Mm-hmm. So I really knew New York State issues. So the first thing I did was I only had authority to hire one other person. Everyone else was civil service or career staff. There was only one other political appointment in the region, uh, chief of staff position. So the first thing I did, because I knew New York so well, is I hired a brilliant woman from New Jersey to be my chief of staff. And then I really learned New Jersey issues. In my first year, I spent far more time in New Jersey, Puerto Rico and the West Virgin Islands than I did in New York. And um, on day three, I rebelled in terms of the way the career staff were trying to orient me to the agency. They literally had about two weeks of my schedule where I was getting briefed every hour on an issue with an occasional bathroom break. And like on day three, I'm like, this is not working. And this is not the stuff I wanna be briefed on. I wanna be briefed on this, this, and this. They're all lovely, wonderful people. Um, But I said, you know what? I'm gonna take control of my schedule. So I knew like I wanted to get the Hudson River cleaned up because GE had contaminated the Hudson with PCBs for decades. I wanted to break the log jam. So I said, I really want a briefing on Hudson River. I want to hear from the scientists. I want to hear from the lawyers. I want to develop a strategy. I want to talk to the press people. So, um, you know, I started on issues more than anything. And I think it was fair criticism that I was um, not in the weeds enough on some of the management issues, but I had career staff who were really, really good at it. I did jump in on some issues. For instance, um, EPA had an anti-harassment policy but no procedures and no mandatory in-person training. So uh, and a couple of women came to me and said, you know, we had issues with harassment during the last administration. We were not treated fairly. We think, you know, the agency is a problem. So that was a management issue I really, really focused on. And it took me two years, but I, nationwide, I got the policy to, to be married to a procedure, a written procedure. And we did mandatory in-person training. I don't know if they're still doing it.
0: One thing I want to hear is so you know you come into these agencies as a leader and there are career civil servants and when you come in the administration obviously they, they have to play a sort of neutral role because their job remains the same. But was there a, an excitement about the new administration yes. and a belief that okay, we actually might be able to move the dial on topics that perhaps they had been working on. For yeah. A long time. So
1: remember, I came in after the administration of George W. That's Bush, right. and they mm-hmm. were told not to acknowledge climate change. Right. So there was kind of an underground group that worked on climate change, and they came out of the closet. So I remember, you know, I I gave a speech to the entire staff on my first day, and it was very upbeat and it was exciting, and people were incredibly welcoming. Um, and then I started to push, and I pushed really hard, and I I would do it all over again. Um, I tried to win over the staff, and I did in most, not all instances. Uh, the most resistance, to be honest, was from some of the, se- the seasoned, more senior staff. A couple of them left. Um, and um, were replaced by incredibly talented career staff or people who were new to the agency. Um, People tended, when I got there, jobs typically were not advertised outside the agency, only Mm -hmm. within the agency. And you get kind of stale when you have the same people. So I instituted that jobs needed to be advertised externally as well. Um, but it's a push and pull, you know, I, I'm, I, I need to be honest. It wasn't all a bed of roses. I mean, I got some resistance. Uh, I also listened. I mean, there was the cleanup of the Passaic River that I worked really hard on. Um, I wanted a more comprehensive cleanup, but the career staff convinced me that it was already gonna be the most expensive cleanup in the history of the country and if we pushed for more, we would lose it, and they were right, and Mm -hmm. I followed their recommendations. I followed their recommendations quite a bit, but on other issues like um, PCBs in schools, uh, this was kind of a surprise. We had um, lighting fixtures in old school buildings in New York City that were leaking PCBs, or um, just the presence of PCBs when you turned on the lights, the PCBs would volatilize. So I remember, you know, Mayor Bloomberg was so unhappy that we were working on this, and we brought an enforcement action. He was really unhappy because why? Because um, it would cost a billion dollars to fix. Got it. But you know, he was supposed to be the environmental mayor, and I just kept talking to sometimes him, sometimes his staff, saying, "You can't ignore this." So I remember we brought an enforcement action, and. Um, Then you kind of enter negotiations, and the city was going to try to settle, remove all the lights within 20 years. And I said, that's just too much. And my staff said, that's that's as good as it's going to get you to, you can't do it quicker than 20 years. So we ended our negotiations, and then outside groups came in and litigated, um, they settled the case and reached a schedule of five years. So my, my final month at EPA, they would completed the full removal of all the PCB lightings, which is the largest energy efficiency improvement ever to take place in the country.
0: So Judith, you just mentioned the end of your time at the EPA. So when uh, the new administration was going to be coming in and, and Donald Trump was elected president, did you at any time consider staying? What was the process no, of leaving? No, I would,
1: I would never st- work for Donald Trump.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and I don't think they would want me either. I, was even, I thought Hillary Clinton was gonna win the race and I was still gonna leave because I think every president deserves to bring in their own senior people. And also I was kind of itching to get back in the game. I mean, at that point I was in government for 17 years and I wanted to get back more to advocacy.
0: And what was the mood of the staff of the seasoned, you know, civil servants upon this radical terrible. shift? It
1: was know? terrible. I mean, people came to my office in tears. I mean, remember the election was in early November. I didn't leave until late January. Mm-hmm. And most of my time there was essentially being a grief counselor. Especially the newer staff that we hired, they they were just beside themselves. And so at my farewell party, uh, I, didn't like want, I didn't want a big deal, but I was okay with coffee and cake in the fancy room in the building. And I wanted to say goodbye to everyone. Um, and I gave what I think is a pretty inspiring speech. And I said, stay and fight and stand up for science and fight and don't give up. And I think it made the staff feel a little bit better. Um, but what we didn't anticipate was that Scott Pruitt would come in to head the EPA and that he would not even allow the scientists and the experts in the room. They, they've been frozen out. So this is literally the situation. You have career staff who, for instance, worked on regulations to, re, to address climate change for seven years during the Obama administration it took us to do that, maybe a little less, and then they literally get an email saying, you need to now draft a regulation to repeal the regulation you worked on. No discussion, just go do it. So I think the Trump administration is suffering from not listening to career people and listening to science because Many state attorneys general and environmental groups have sued on these regulatory ro- rollbacks. There are over fifty of them, and um, and the Trump administration is losing most of the cases. But what's happened is they're not doing positive regulations, and they're also promoting things like offshore drilling for oil and gas and acting like climate change is not an issue. So on the climate issue, we're we're Losing valuable time. And Bill McKibben at Middlebury College with 350.org wisely has said, winning slowly is losing. So we are winning a little bit at the state level, the local level, there's you know, more people installing solar, there's more electric cars, there's more energy efficiency commitments, but it's too slow. And I, um, literally sometimes lay awake at night worrying about um, what climate change is doing not necessarily to the natural environment but to the people particularly Mm -hmm. low-income people who don't have the resources to deal with hurricane sandy i worked on that extensively when i was at epa i went down to help out after hurricane um, irma hit the governor of the virgin islands called me and asked me to come down and help So I went down there for a few weeks, could not believe what I saw. And we know that low-income people and often people of color are the most impacted by these horrific storms and don't, you know, they don't have the resources to bounce back. You know, during Sandy, I saw, um, you know, people could go live with relatives or they had insurance or they could afford a hotel for two weeks. I also saw thousands of people remain behind in public housing in the Rockaways with no running water, with volunteers delivering food, people not getting access to medicine. And we're going to see Hurricane Sandy-style storms a couple times a year. It's not going to be once every 10 years. We just saw Hurricane Florence. For the life of me, I don't understand. Well, I do understand why the Trump administration is so bad on climate change, because they're beholden to the fossil fuel industry. But for the life of me, I don't understand why other people in Washington can't break through and and break the grip that the oil and gas industry has on our federal government. It is is really an ethical disaster.
0: And the oil and gas industry knows all about climate change. They did much of the research in the 70s. So, yeah. And they also know that it's, 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 it's not an end game that they will win. So.
1: And there's, you know, Exxon is still planning on um, investing more in oil and gas in the future. So um, it's really, it's, it's overwhelming. And at the same time, you have to figure out what you can do as an individual to address this. We don't have the luxury of ignoring it.
0: So you are acting as an individual and you have some new projects underway.
1: Yeah, so uh, plastic pollution is a climate change issue because it's made from petroleum or fracked gas. It's also a real threat to the oceans and fish and wildlife. Close to 700 species are impacted by plastic pollution. Um, So I feel so privileged to come here to Bennington College to teach a class on plastic pollution and to work side by side with students on community-based projects. The goal is to um, help students um, educate themselves on the issue and then tackle a community-based project that will reduce plastic pollution. And it's so fitting to be in Kappa with the emphasis on public action. My whole life, my whole professional life has been public action, so I love landing here. And you know, I hope that we can have Bennington students working in partnership with community leaders um, to figure out a way to reduce plastic pollution in our own communities. Um, you have to give people hope. You have to give people something to do. I think once you hear the details, like it's estimated that within the next decade for every three pounds of fish in the ocean, there'll be one pound of plastic, you know, which is astonishing. Um, okay, that's a problem, what are we gonna do about it? So you have to break it down into bite-size actions and hopefully help train the next generation of environmental leaders.
0: So, I mean, I, I think in all of these endeavors, it not only takes a, a very learned and research-oriented mind um, and, and someone who can understand the data and the information, but it also takes creativity. What kind of um, inspiration do you find, or how do you draw upon being creative in kind of tackling these what seem to be intractable problems?
1: Well, I'm not a very creative person. I, I don't believe that. I, I am <laughs> I am strategic, but I'm not creative. I do know that every great social movement relies on art and relies on music. Um, so, you know, I just helped facilitate a rally at the governor's mansion in in Albany a few weeks ago on climate change and the best part of the rally was music and I remember telling the organizers you have music lined up right? Oh yes we we don't but we will. So I think um, music and art inspires people on environmental issues it's so important because it's about our earth and it's about something that's much greater than ourselves. Um, And I'm actually gonna be relying on the Bennington students to bring creativity to this work. I'm more of a policy wonk, I'm more of a strategist, um, and I need to be more creative, and I need to find different ways to reach people. So this is gonna be more uh, relying on students. Uh, to bring creativity to the process, writing, uh, visual arts, um, social media, uh, music, dance. I mean, I'm kind of excited to see what the students come up with.
0: Well, we can't thank you enough. I'm very grateful for you you sharing all of this. We could talk for another hour or two. Um, So maybe we'll do a part two at some future moment to hear updates on what the class is doing in the spring. All right, thank you.
1: Thank you. of Public Action. The Create Now team is Anna Saldinger and Robert Banzik. Today's show is produced and audio engineered by Anna Saldinger. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe.